Well, hey there. Good morning, Redemption. Good to see you guys. Hey, I loved hearing you guys worship. That was amazing. Uh, You guys really getting into it today. It sounded great. You guys sound... Awesome. Hey, um, if this is your first time with us, uh, my name's Byron. I'm the lead pastor and planter here at Redemption, and I'm really happy that you came out to worship with us today. Um, Today, we're going to be kicking off a new series um, called Live by Faith. Um, It's going to be about four weeks through the book of Habakkuk. Um, How many of you guys have ever heard of the book of Habakkuk? Anybody read it? Good, six of you. Okay, this is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Um, Hey, these little guys in the Old Testament, they don't get a lot of love, which is why I'm excited to be able to kind of work through it with us today. Um, And so uh, the title of this series is Live by Faith. Um, And that's the main theme of this book. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today as we look at Habakkuk 2, uh, verse 4. So that's where we'll be at. I got one verse for you today, um, and it's going to be good. We're going to set up the overview of what this book looks like. And so um, as you guys are kind of trying to find Habakkuk, it might take you a little while um, because not many of us have been there before. Um, So while you're trying to find that, I want to give just kind of a little caveat to set up the sermon. Um, So here at Redemption, um, I tried to plan out our sermon series about a year in advance. So, um, you know, about a year ago when we were dreaming about planting the church, I was praying over and laying out the preaching calendar to kind of see what we'll be working on. And all of year one has been trying to cast vision to what kind of church we dream to be like. And so we started off with a series called What's Your Story? where we walk through some gospel narratives and taking a look at how no matter who you are or what you have done, that everyone can meet Jesus and experience life change. And then after that, we looked at This Changes Everything, where we looked at how the gospel implicates every aspect of our lives. And then we just wrapped up the book of Philippians, where we took a look at the church as an exemplary and model church. So everything that we're going to continue to do this year is casting vision to the type of church that we dream or aspire to be like. And I'm already working on 2017's sermon series. So I know that in January, we're going to kick off with a series over prayer. And, uh, and so that's what we're working on from there. We're kind of still working through it with a couple of my elders and things that we're doing. So we're still trying to plan out 2017. So what, the reason why I tell you that is because in the midst of all of this planning and praying, um, there, was, there was this sense that uh, to preach this book of Habakkuk, and, uh, and I couldn't shake it. You know, it didn't really fit into the calendar that we were working with uh, because Habakkuk is very deep. It's very personal. It's practical, um, but it deals with some you know, major uh, philosophical and theological issues that many of us will wrestle with. And I was like, man, I don't know if we're to preach that. Um, And then uh, over the past month, I began to see the news unfold. And then also this week. And so um, Habakkuk wrestles with the question, God, why? Habakkuk wrestles in this area to, to look around at his nation that is in disrepair and disrepute. And Habakkuk then ministers into that. So I don't believe that it is a coincidence that God would have us as a church walking through the book of Habakkuk while us as a nation is walking through these things. And so God is uh, providential in that because many of us are coming from every different aspect and just wrestling with some of these big questions of God. And so that's kind of what we'll be hitting at here in the book of Habakkuk. And so um, with that being said, let's go ahead and pray and then uh, we'll get to work. Heavenly Father, we come to you today because you are good. Lord, you are good and it's all about you. Lord, we trust in you. We rest in you. We have faith in you. And then we live by that faith. 
Father, thank you for your son Jesus that died the death that we deserved and in that gives us eternal life so we can gather together as a family here under the banner of love and of grace and of redemption. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit that uh, the same Holy Spirit that wrote this book is also the same Spirit that illuminates it to us as we read it and as we listen. The same Holy Spirit that comforts us in times of need, that empowers us in times of ministry, that gives good gifts to his children to love and serve the world. Father, we thank you for all of these things and we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we get into the book of Habakkuk, what I got to do is I got to kind of set up a a historical overview um, to take a look at the time and the culture that Habakkuk is written in. Because remember, like the Bible is written to a specific people in a specific place. um, And so it's not necessarily about us, um, but it's for us, but it's mainly about Jesus. And so in order to understand the time that Habakkuk is administering to, like I got to kind of set the backdrop for you. Um, Habakkuk is ministering in a time of God's people that was very twisted, very corrupt, very idolatrous, and just a very broken time in the nation of God's people. And so this is the time that Habakkuk is ministering to. And so in that day, the the nation of Israel had kings. And so as it had kings, it started off, a couple of them were, you know, pretty decent. Saul, the first king, was quite a disappointment. But David, the second king, was a man after God's own heart. But David himself had some major character flaws. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And so while he established the kingdom of Israel, he was not allowed to build the temple. God said, you can't do that because you have blood on your hands. And so David dies and his son Solomon takes over. And so Solomon takes over. He's wise and one of the richest people that's ever lived in the history of the world. And in this, he establishes peace and he builds the temple. So this really for Israel was the height of its existence. And then Solomon dies. And when Solomon dies, his kids come in and they make a mess of things. And so his kids come in and they begin to worship false gods, go into pagan practices, and they turn their back from God. And as they turn their back from God, it doesn't take very long before the nation of Israel divides in into two nations. You have Israel in the north and you got Judah in the south. Now, as Judah and Israel begin to fall further and further away from God, it doesn't take very long for the nation of Babylon, a great army that would come in, destroy, sack, and take everyone from Israel in the north away into captivity as slaves. That leaves Judah in the south all by itself, falling and and running further away from God. And so much so that the king before Habakkuk ministered his name was Amon, that he actually took the temple and he built other temples to false gods and turned it into a place of ritual sexual worship by, um, by committing sexual acts in the temple for worship, child sacrifice, child molestation, and rape. That's the way they worshiped. So this is the time that is happening in God's people. And I don't know if you've ever seen Game of Thrones. Um, I'm, I haven't because I'm your pastor. Um, <laughs> But I can see from, not your Facebook posts, but others, Facebook posts, kind of what happens. It's basically like this, that someone becomes king, next episode, dead. That's the book of Kings. And that as soon as you see someone, they die, someone else takes over. And this happens until you got an eight-year-old who becomes king. And this is what happens in the nation of Israel when Josiah becomes king. And Josiah is interesting because Josiah becomes king at the age of eight. Okay, you know your nation is in a bad spot when a second grader is the best hope you got. (laughs) 
So they take one of the kids from upstairs and they bring him down and they make him king. And as you can imagine, when a second grader would become president, like everything's probably cool for a little while, uh, but pretty soon it's all going to fall apart, right? And that's exactly what happened until Josiah gets his driver's license at 16. And at the age of 16, he, he's walking through the temple and he finds a scroll. And in this scroll, he opens up the scroll. And what it is, is it is the first five books of the Bible. It is the Pentateuch, Torah, it's the law. He opens it up, he reads the Bible, and it says that he is cut to the heart. And as he reads the Bible, and he looks at the culture and the state of his nation around him, that he repents and he devotes his heart and his mind to the things of the Lord. And as he devotes his heart and his mind to the things of the Lord, there is a revival that happens in the nation. There is a revival. There is a spiritual awakening. There is a renewal and a reawakening that happens in the nation of Israel. And so everyone turns their back from their sin and to God. And what happens is God then blesses the nation to prosper. And so there's this moment of prosperity that happens in the nation of Israel because they all repented. And this happened all the way from the, the very highest places of the government down to the common people of the land. And so I was thinking about this this week. What would it look like if something like this were to happen here in America? And I know just even talking about it, some people in this room, some people are like, yeah, yeah, revival, bring this. We need total reform, all things. And then some of us are like, oh, I don't know, you know, like that, that, that might be a little tricky. Uh, but, but nevertheless, this is what happened. That from the top down, from the king down to the sectors of education and agriculture into the arts, there was an awakening of the presence of God in every aspect of their lives. And the nation flourished because of it. And this goes on for about a period of 15, maybe 20 years until Josiah dies tragically. And when tragedy happens, the nation of Israel, they go back to their old ways, their old lives, their old gods, and continue in their same old sin. And now what you're thinking, you're thinking, you know, that was 2,600 years ago. Those Israelites, they were such primitive people. We're so much better than they are now. I want you to listen. We're not. We're not better. Because we live in the same perpetual state that they did. Because we are humans. We are, we are broken. We are confused. We are flawed. And we are not perfect. Because what happens in our lives when tragedy or injustice or something happens, what do we do? We go back to our old ways. When, when something happens in our life, what do we do? We begin to trust in ourselves instead of God. And this is what Habakkuk is ministering into. And so Habakkuk is looking around at all of the violence, all of the injustice, all of the wickedness, the pagan, the corruption of his land. And this is where Habakkuk ministers. And so what God does, because God is always patiently and passionately pursuing after his people, he doesn't leave you alone to your own devices. And so what he does is he raises up prophets to be able to speak truth and grace and mercy and judgment and repentance upon the culture. And so God raises up two prophets in this time. One is Jeremiah and the other is our boy Habakkuk. And so Jeremiah, his ministry looks different. His ministry is more proclaiming forth into the nations the judgment and repentance. And so Jeremiah's ministry was more like he wasn't allowed to marry. He wasn't allowed to go to any parties. He wasn't allowed to date. He wasn't allowed to have any fun. He wasn't supposed to feel like God felt, alone and sad. So Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he wanted the nation to feel as God felt, that he had been abandoned, that he was alone, and that he was sad. 
And so Habakkuk's ministry is different. Habakkuk reads more like a journal entry. So it's like a journal entry between God and Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's asking God, God, why is all this happening? God, what is going on? And And God says, no, before we talk about the world, let's talk about you. And so Habakkuk is very intense. It's very personal and it's very practical. And the way Habakkuk is set up is like this. It's like a journal entry between God and Habakkuk. And it starts off with, God say, with Habakkuk saying, God, why? God, why? He looks around. He says, what are you doing? I don't understand. Do you know what you're doing? God, do you have a plan? And then God responds and says, Habakkuk, trust me, I got a plan. And then Habakkuk responds and says, God, I don't know if I like your plan. I don't understand what you're doing. Are you sure that that's a good idea? And God says, Habakkuk, trust me. I got a plan. And then Habakkuk gets this brilliant idea in chapter three where he says, oh, I'm gonna trust you. The end, that's it. That's the book of Habakkuk. It says, God, I don't know what you're doing. And then God says, trust me. And Habakkuk says, are you sure? And he says, trust me. Oh, you're God, I'll trust you. That's it. That's the book of Habakkuk. And so while we're looking over this series, what's important for us to note is that that we could get lost on this. So don't get lost on this. That, That God listens and that God responds, okay? Like that God actually responds to Habakkuk. And maybe you're sitting here and you're in this place where you're kind of like, I don't know what God's doing and I don't feel like God's listening. The truth is, is that God is listening. God is actively involved in your life. God listens and then God responds to Habakkuk in his needs. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know if God responds to me. I mean, his name's Habakkuk. Of course that's Habakkuk. I mean, my name's Bill. Bill doesn't even sound like it fits in the Bible. Like there's not a book of Bill. Of course he's gonna respond to Habakkuk. But God responds to you as well. And so every time you and I, when we come to the scriptures, when we open up our Bible and we we look and we read our word and we come to him with questions and we open up our Bibles, you and I are in the exact same place that Habakkuk was. That we open up our word and we sit down and God has come to say something to us. That God speaks to us through his word. So so don't get lost on this. That God is actively listening and that God has responded to us. We have God's word. We don't have to speculate or conjecture or have these opinions about what we feel as if God is leading us or God is listening. No, God has come to you and he is actively engaged in your life, speaking to you through this word. And so as we read this word, we recognize that God is speaking to us even 2,600 years later that this is the word of God and it's precious and it has direction for our lives. And from that place, we are to listen and then live by faith. We are to listen and then to live by faith. And this is what God says to Habakkuk. And he says this in verse two, four. He says, behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Faith. This is the major theme of this book, is faith. That we are to live by faith. And now, here's why I want to do Habakkuk. Because you and I, at some point in our lives, we will all hit this spot we will all hit this place in Christian maturity to where we will throw our hands up in the air and we'll say, God, why? I don't understand. God, what are you doing? And on the road to Christian maturity, you and I and everyone in this room and in this world will have these moments to where we look up to heaven, we say, God, I don't understand. 
I don't understand. And if you listen to the conversations that are happening in culture, you listen to the conversations of your, your, your non-believing friends or the conversations that people are having at Luke's or at a restaurant or at the, uh, the, the water cooler, and that everyone, um, whether a believer or not, their biggest complaints or question when it comes to the existence of God is the, the, the God's sovereignty and the issue of human suffering. They say, God, I don't understand if there was a good, loving, all-powerful God, how he could allow the atrocities that happen against mankind. And so if you are not at this place, trust me, one day you will be. And so this is why we need the book of Habakkuk. And this is what God is speaking to Habakkuk in this. And he says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You and I, as human beings, we are creatures of exceeding faith. You may say, well, I'm not really a believer. You may be in this room and you're a skeptic. You, you, you don't know if you really have faith. You're trying to figure out if this Jesus stuff is for real. And so you come to God and you're saying, well, I, I'm just, I don't really have faith, but I'm telling you that you do. That everyone has faith. Everyone has faith in something, and, and I'll prove it to you. When you woke up this morning and you, you, you went outside to kind of hop in your car, you know, you pounded a couple of cups of coffee, you tried to make it out the door, you, you fought with the kids to get them ready, and you're trying to rush them out the door. Maybe you're a college student and you overslept, your alarm's going off for five times because you stayed up 5 a.m. playing video games, but you still had to know that you had to be here. So you hopped in the car, you ran, and then did you get out underneath the car? Did you climb under the car and check all the brake lines? to make sure that nobody overnight came on there and just kind of took your brake lines apart. You didn't sit in your car, pump the brakes a couple of times to make sure that it was gonna work. No, what did you do? You hopped in your car, you buckled up, and you backed up, and then you drove here because you had faith that a car was gonna do what a car does. You had faith in that. And the car might make some noises, but it's gonna do what the car does. And we could take it another step further. Like when you came into this room, like when you came, you're working your way, trying to find a seat. You didn't like check the four legs of the chairs. You didn't check the weight occupancy to make sure that I could hold you. You just sat in the chair. And right now as you're listening, you're not worried that the chair is going to fall apart. Because you have faith that a chair is going to do what a chair does. You and I are creatures of exceeding faith. And at the bottom of all of our lives, there is a faith decision. Because faith is very practical. It's very personal. And it's very applicable. Faith impacts every decision that we make in our lives. It determines who we date, who we marry, how we raise our kids, where we spend our money, where we go to church. And it determines every aspect of our life. At the bottom of all of our lives is a faith decision. Whether you believe in God or not, the difference is, is that if you don't believe in God, you have thousands of steps of faith that you you have to take every day to make it. But as Christians, we have one step, trusting in God, his sovereignty, that he is good and that he is in control. So as Christians, we just have one simple step of faith, to trust in Jesus no matter what comes our way. And see, so, so what, what Habakkuk is hearing from God is that there is only two types of people, that there are those who trust in God and then those who trust in themselves. 
And that's what God is saying. He says, if we want to clear the deck, if we want to boil it all down, if we want to remove all of the religions, the philosophies, the ideologies, the self-helps, clear the deck. At the end of the day, at the bottom of our lives, there's only two types of people, those who trust in God and those who trust in themselves. And this is what God is saying to Habakkuk. He's saying, look around. There's two types of people, one who is puffed up and not upright, the one who is not righteous, who trusts in themselves, And then there are those who live by faith. See, this is God's perspective. Two types of people. There's people and then there's Jesus. That's it. But what happens is because we don't have God's perspective, we divide everyone else in a different way. We divide people into good people and bad people. We say these are the good people and then these are the bad people. And we create our lists to determine what is a good person and what is a bad person. But God doesn't see good people, bad people. God just sees people. That's it. He says, these are all the people, and then this is Jesus, and that everybody needs Jesus. And so when there's no good people, bad people, we recognize we are all on the same playing field. But the problem is, in culture or in church, we create these false dichotomies of good people and bad people. And so in the church or in religion or morality, what you can do is people begin to create these lists to determine who a good person is. And then they say, you know, this is what a good person is. And I thank God I'm not like these other people because, you know, here's my list of how we get to God. You can't drink, you can't smoke, you can't cuss. You have to dress a certain way, read a certain translation. You have to go to church on a certain day. You have to live a life according to these means. And this is what it means to be a good person. And I'm a good person because I'm not like them. And then the culture hears that and they say, whoa, whoa, no, 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 wait, we're good people too. Like, I'm a good person, okay? Because, you know, I don't hurt anybody. I pay my taxes. I vote. I, I, I have my causes. I, I support, you know, this organization. I'm a good person. And so both culture and church, what they can do is they create these lists of what a good person is and what a bad person is. And the thing is, is that God doesn't see it that way. That God's perspective is not, this is good, this is bad. God's perspective is that we are all bad and that we have all fallen. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of God's standard and that we all need Jesus and we all need hope and we all need redemption. And so what can happen for us in our lives is when these two uh, worldviews collide, it can oftentimes bring a lot of confusion So when these two worldviews collide, it brings confusion. I'll tell you a story early on in my walk with Jesus that brought quite a bit of confusion to me for quite some time. And I told you guys all the time, um, the way I met Jesus was I was raised in church, but as a teenager, I did the teenager thing and I I walked away. I became very rebellious, very self-righteous. I just kind of lived and did my own thing and made my own way. Um, and, And so as I came to Jesus at the age of 20, I was a mess. I was a total wreck. You know, and I had, I had just burned every bridge. I had destroyed relationships. Um, and, and so my life coming to Jesus, like, like people were like, that guy got saved? Like, yeah. They're like, oh, well, I guess that kind of makes sense because he really needed Jesus. Um, and, so, and so, yeah, Jesus saved me. Jesus changed me. Praise God. I didn't want to come to Jesus, but the grace of God won over my heart. And so, um, so I come to Jesus at the age of 20. Moral of the story, teenagers, if you're in the room, love Jesus and listen to your mom. That's the story. Um, so I met Jesus at 20, right? And so what I did was I started a Bible study with a couple of my friends, and we met in Ashley's first apartment, okay? And uh, this is kind of funny. Um, I'll tell you, this Bible study was a wreck, okay? It was a complete 
mess, all right? And one of the reasons why I believe in the sovereignty of God is because we're still walking with Jesus today. Uh, that's why I believe in the goodness of God, right? Like if anybody were to have lost their salvation, it would have been me. Uh, I mean, I probably would have been blacked out drunk on a beach and forgot where I left it. Like that's kind of what the first year of me following Jesus looked like. Um, and so I was a complete wreck, right? One time we, we decided that we were gonna take communion. So we're sitting in this apartment. There's about 10, 15 of us. And uh, we called it BYOBB, um, bring your own beer, and Bible. And so we would invite everybody over, we'd sit in a room, we'd smoke cigarettes and kill a case of Shiner, and we'd read our Bibles. Like that's, that's, that's was my Christian maturity for the first year. Um, there's your pastor, guys. So, um, so we're sitting in the circle, and we've been doing it for a while, and we're like, hey, we should take communion, because we've never taken communion before. And I know what you're thinking, like, oh, that's so beautiful. Young believers taking communion together for the first time. It's amazing. So we, what I did was I went out to the store and I bought a gallon of Carlos Rossi sangria. Um, and I don't know if you guys know what Carlos Rossi sangria is. More power to you if you don't. Um, so so we, we, we got the sangria um, and, and we, we dipped the bread in the wine, uh, dipped the bread in the wine and we took communion, we prayed, we read Corinthians 11. It was beautiful. So after Bible study's over, we're like, well, what do we do with all this wine? <laughs> so we're like, well, Jesus wants us to be, you know, a good steward of our finances and all of creation. So it'd be, you know, kind of a bad stewardship to waste it. And also Jesus' first miracle was a bartender serving wine. So uh, let's drink it. Um, so we did. And we drank the whole gallon of wine. We woke up the next morning. I had a, I had a hangover. And uh, I decided, well, let's keep reading Corinthians. And as I did, I realized that Paul was rebuking the church for getting drunk on wine at Bible study. Oops. So what I, that day I learned a valuable lesson for the maturity of faith. Read the context. What I'll, say, what I'll say that is that God was gracious to us. We don't live that life, but God was patient with us in our walk with Jesus. And that God was gracious to us in that time. That God was patient and God was faithful even though I wasn't. And he was good to me in that. And so the whole time, we're, we're inviting our friends, trying to, trying to bring people into this Bible study, inviting our friends to church. And there's this one guy that I was inviting to church, and I, I really never thought that he was going to make it. Maybe you have some of those friends. You know, you're like, I keep inviting this guy, but I don't really know if he's ever going to come. But, but you keep inviting him. And so there's this one guy that I prayed for all the time that I would invite to, to come, and I never really believed that he would come. And then one day, he showed up. And so as he showed up, we're sitting there, we're having our little Bible study, we're having this discussion, and afterwards, this is what he told me. He said, Byron, here's what I don't understand about you Christians, that Christians act as if you have your own corner of morality, that, that, that you're good people, and that, you know, you're better parents, and that you take care of things better, and, you, and like, you're better people than everybody else, because you have your own corner of morality. And that's just not true, because I'm a good person too. I'm a good person. I, I have a nephew. I love him. I like to take care of him. You know, I have a job. I pay my taxes. I like to have fun. Yeah, I party. I get drunk, but I'm a happy drunk. I'm a good drunk. And I have a good time. See, I'm no different than you are. Like, we're all just good people. And this is what he told me. He said, Byron, I'm really happy that you found God because you need God to provide a moral framework for your life. But I don't because I, I, I'm just a good person. That not everybody needs that. That what might be true for you is not true for me. And that I can be good without God. And that was essentially what he was saying. And when this collided with me early in my Christian walk, I'll be honest with you, it brought a lot of confusion in my life. 
Well, how good is good enough? That became the question for me. How good is good enough? And so I started, I started thinking about it. I started wrestling with this. Like, Lord, what is it? How good do I have to be in order to be saved? How good do I have to be to, to, to have relationship? How good do I have to be to live this decent moral life? So I began to read and to, to study and to see, well, how good is good enough? And then I came across, it didn't take very long, when Jesus said in Matthew, he said, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I thought, perfect? Seriously, that's, that's God's standard, perfection? If that's the case, we're doomed because I'm not perfect. I can't be perfect. I never will be perfect. I haven't been perfect. And even if from this day forward, I were to by some chance obey all of God's commands, all of God's laws, do all the things to earn perfection, it's still too late because in my past, I wasn't perfect. I'm doomed. I'm more than doomed. I'm damned. Because God's standard is not just good. God's standard is God. And I came to this and I wondered, well, how is it possible that anybody could be saved? And it wasn't until I stumbled upon the doctrine of justification that any of this makes sense. Justification being the question, how can I, as a sinner, stand before a just and holy God and expect anything other than condemnation? How can I, separated from my sins, made in God's image, but shattered that image, lived autonomously from God, with my back turned to him, one day stand before him and be judged based upon his righteousness and not my own? That, that God's standard is God himself. That God doesn't judge us based upon your good deeds or your bad deeds. God judges based upon himself. How could I stand before this God? I am broken. I am shattered. I am flawed. I am imperfect. I am confused. I am lost. I am hurting. How could anyone stand before this God? And that's the place that we find ourselves in. Because God doesn't judge us as good people, bad people. God just judges us as people. And see, for some of us, that's really good news because we've lived pretty bad lives. For some of us, that's good news, that God doesn't judge me according to my actions or the things that I've done. For some of us, however, this is bad news because we think that we are perfect and as if we have lived as we've had. So God doesn't judge us based upon these standards because what would happen is if God judged us according you know, to our good deeds and he would just to wink at our bad deeds and give us a pass, then we would ruin everything because God is not just good, Though he is, God is perfect. Heaven is not just good, though it is, heaven is perfect. And if he were just to wink at us and let us in, we'd ruin everything. And so what this means for us is that the standard that God holds us to is Jesus. That Jesus was perfect and we are to be perfect as if our heavenly father is perfect. And in our lives, what we tend to do is we begin to justify ourselves by pointing at other people and say, it's easy for me to be a good person when I compare myself to other people. When I compare myself to the, to the guy on the bottom of the totem pole, then I'm a good person. But instead of comparing ourselves to other people, what the Bible says is compare yourselves to God. And when we compare ourselves to God, I think we would all admit we fall short. Yeah. We fall short. And see, what most of us do is we, we look at other people, we judge them and justify our actions instead of looking to the judge who justifies us. This is what God is saying. There is no good people. There is no bad people. 
There's just people and me. So who do you trust in? Do you trust in yourself or do you trust in Jesus? And what happens is, if we were to go in the route of learning to trust in ourselves, I will tell you this, that you will be perennially frustrated in your life. And the reason being is this, it's because, because when tragedy, when pain, when suffering come upon you, you have nowhere to turn but to yourself. You have nowhere to turn but to look at yourself and to look into yourself. And so because we don't have a standard that we are to kind of judge our lives based upon without God, there is no meaning in suffering. There would be no meaning in tragedy. And because of that, we become frustrated. We become frustrated because there is a sense of a longing for righteousness that we all have. We all long for righteousness. We all long for justice. We all long for truth and reconciliation. But without Jesus, there is no answer to that longing for. So in our lives, we become frustrated and we try to seek out the answer for righteousness in one of three ways. First is that of moralism. This is just be a good and decent person. That I can live my life, do it my way, and that in the end, everything is gonna be okay. And if you listen to most people in culture and around town, most people do believe in God. It'll be very hard pressed to find somebody who is a staunch atheist, who is just vehemently like there is no God. Most people believe that there is a higher power that exists somewhere out there that kind of created the universe and then set it all into motion. This is what most people believe in, that God is like an absentee landlord, that he kind of, you know, like he, he just wants to make sure that we pay our cosmic rent and we take care of our end of the agreement and then everything's going to be okay. Because what it is, is that it's good without God. I don't have to really necessarily believe in God. My faith doesn't implicate every action or decision of my life, but it feels good to have them there in case I need them. This is the God of moralism. And the God of moralism says that, like, if I can just do my job, you know, I can just take care of my stuff, and then I don't infringe upon anybody else's liberty, then at the end of the day, I'm going to make it because I'm a good person. And what this is, is self-righteousness. And I know we would never call it self-righteousness, but that's what it is, because it's trusting in yourself for your own salvation. And that you look to yourself and to your own standards to live your life. That I become my own God, I have my own throne, I have my own lists, I have my own judge, and I judge other people according to my list. And what it is, is it's self-righteousness. It's trusting in yourself for your own salvation. And the second way that we could turn to that of religion. Religion is works righteousness. This says that I know that I'm not perfect. I know that I am not good. I know that I have not kept God's laws. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to work really hard to do a good job and I'm going to pay God back. That I'm going to pay God back. I'm going I'm to eat a certain food. I'm going to dress a certain way. I'm going to pray this many times. I'm going to make this pilgrimage. I'm going to pay off my karmic debt. I'm going to reincarnate. I'm going to read this translation. I'm going to do these good deeds. And at the end of my life, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I could earn God's favor and he will accept me or be pleased with me. This is what is known as works righteousness, trusting that your works will save you. And so all of us, we have this longing for righteousness and these really are the two ways, uh, one of the two ways that many of us will seek that out. But what happens is, if this is the way that we seek out our righteousness, I will tell you that what it leads to is either pride, to where you'll become arrogant and self-righteous, that you will be better than everybody else, and that you will become your own God. And then, so we live a life like this, and it leads to pride, which ultimately is the greatest sin of all, because that's the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. So why would that be the one that would allow you in? It's the greatest sin that keeps us away from God. And so it pushes us further and further away in our arrogance 
and our self-righteousness. But for the other, for trusting, in your, for, for trusting in works righteousness will leave you frustrated as well because you will be running in spiritual circles trying to please God and at the end of the day, you will feel as if faith is more like a failure because you will never live up to God's standards and you will you'll continue to do the things you're not supposed to and you can't do the things that you ought to do and then you're left wondering, frustrated, questioning why. And so you throw your hands up and you say, God, I can't do this. And what it does is it leads us further away from God. And it leaves us frustrated, despairing, and depressed because we can't live up to ourselves. And it's only at this place that some of us throw our hands up we say, God, I can't do this. And then Jesus steps in and says, it's okay, I did it for you. And that we find what is called grace, which is gift righteousness. That Jesus comes into that place of pain and he speaks promise. That Jesus comes into the place of tragedy and he speaks triumph. That Jesus steps into your place and receives the condemnation for your sins. That this is justification, that Jesus stands in your place, that he lived the perfect life, that he died the perfect death, that he rose to overcome your suffering, your sin, and your shame. And now God sees you just as if he sees his son. And this is all a gift. This is grace. This is gift righteousness that Jesus would stand in heaven and look at his people in hurting, in pain, in confusion, and he would leave heaven to enter into that, to take on the flesh of man, to live as if, as if he was one of us, and to the die the death in our place. And then he would give us his grace. And so this is gift righteousness, that we receive this, that we receive what Jesus has done for us. And we live according to that, not according to our works, but according to his works. Not according to our deeds, but according to his deeds. And so now when I stand before God in heaven, when God sees me, he sees Jesus. When God sees you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus. That he doesn't see your imperfection because in Christ you have been perfect and from that day forward we make progress day by day living by faith. That grace is a gift that comes by faith and faith is a gift that comes from God. And that faith would come from God himself. That God would make you righteous and that God would give you faith. To live a life in this life, to live in a world that needs hope, that needs grace, that needs truth. And so by faith, we live out this life and we say, God, I don't understand everything that's going on, but I trust you. Jesus, I trust you. Spirit, I trust you. I trust in your grace. I trust in your redemption. I trust in your salvation. I trust in your mercy that all of this comes as a gift by faith. And that simply, we trust in that. Because this is grace. And so the bottom line for all of us today is this. Stop trying and start trusting. That's the bottom line. It's to stop trying and stop, start trusting. There are two types of people. Those who trust in themselves and those who trust in Jesus. If we boil it all down, this is what God is saying. There's two types of people, those who trust in themselves and those who trust in Jesus. But I'm telling you today, the gospel 
says this, stop trying and start trusting. Stop trying to earn God's favor and start trusting in the faith that comes from God. So we call the band forward. I'll say this in conclusion. Conclusion. Faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it grows. But what happens is, as a muscle to grow, what it needs is the fibers have to tear. There has to be tension. There has to be a struggle. There has to be a tearing. And that's how muscles grow. And so when faith and doubt collide, that's where the presence of God is for us to grow in our faith. That where trust and pain collide is where we grow in our faith. And so here's my, here, here's my prayer for us as a church as we walk through this book of Habakkuk is that we would be a church that lives by faith. That we would be a church that would live by faith in a, in a culture and a world that people are confused, that people are hurting, that people need the gospel. That we'll stop placating religion, we'll stop sugarcoating our prayers, and we'll just go to God and say, God, I'm being honest with you right now. I need faith by faith to live by faith. Um, I, need, I, need, I need understanding, I need hope, I need, I need something to live by. And that God would grant us that in faith. And that's my prayer for us as a church is that through this series, we will take a look at some of the tough questions when it comes to dealing with God. And we will say, no matter what comes, I trust in you. And I'm gonna live by that faith.